What are you afraid of? Not just casually afraid, like I am of grizzly bears and polar bears. In fact, pretty much all bears minus the koala. But what are you really afraid of? When we're young, it seems like everything scares us. Going downstairs alone in the dark is currently one of my daughter's all-time fears. Where does this fear come from? Because truly, I have no idea. Nothing thankfully bad has ever happened in any basement for any of my children. I continually swear to them that the furnace has not and never will come to life, chasing them up the stairs. My logic and reassurance, however, never seems to help. My kids still want me to go downstairs and remain with them while they pick out a toy to bring upstairs. Personally, I have lived a relative life of privilege, particularly when it comes to things that I'm afraid of. This doesn't mean that I've lived a perfect life. I was mugged as a pizza delivery boy. Thankfully, no weapons were involved, and the only wound was done to my pride when the local paper printed a less-than-flattering account of the incident. I've been in a couple of decently scary car crashes, one of which was my fault. I've experienced loss, but for the most part, it has been neither tragic nor sudden. When it comes to fear, my life is encapsulated by the words of Dickie Barrett. I'm not a coward, I've just never been tested. I'd like to think that if I was, I would pass. I worked the next night on delivery shift. I continued to drive after each accident, albeit a little more carefully than before, and I continue to love, even knowing there might be loss. Fear remains. I asked for advice from my best friend when I found out I was going to be a father for the first time. And what is likely the wisest thing he's ever taught me, he told me that being a father means always being afraid. And a lot of times, there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. Fear has always been and will continue to be a huge factor in all of our lives. I live and teach in the United States of America. Like the rest of the world, my country has spent an inordinate amount of time focused on COVID-19, a global pandemic that later this week will surpass the amount of Americans killed by the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. Unlike many parts of the world, the biggest argument during the crisis comes down to whether or not to mandate and or wear a mask. I spent the entirety of last year teaching both masked up and simultaneously split between a virtual and in-person classroom. As of this recording, we are once again under a mandatory district mask policy. Like most of us, I don't find the mask comfortable. But I wear it because I both feel that it protects myself and others, as well as the fact that I'm a rule follower. Looking deeper at that statement suggests that I'm fearful of two things, the virus and disobeying orders. Many of my students and fellow countrymen, however, feel that this issue is one that goes far beyond their own personal comfort versus societal well-being. To them, it is an affront to their individual, God-given right to liberty. In their mind, it's the equivalent of tyranny. To history teachers like myself, the COVID crisis, and it is a legitimate crisis, presents us with an interesting window to compare our society to those that came before us. One of my favorite subjects to teach is the history regarding the Holocaust. Besides illustrating the literal worst of humanity by showcasing the depths of evil that we are capable of, the Holocaust also shows in a positive way what humanity is capable of enduring. I was fortunate enough to be visiting the National Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. on a day when George Lucius Sultan was there, signing copies of his survivor memoir, The 23rd Psalm. As a second-year teacher, I asked Mr. Sultan the question of which memoir he would recommend for a standard history curriculum. He shamelessly plugged his own book, but the reason that he gave for it was sound. He told me that he was right around the same age that my high school students were when the first phases of discrimination began to affect him in his native country of Poland. Once the selection process began, he managed to persevere through multiple work and concentration camps. And amazingly, Lucius was able to survive two separate death camps. 
One of the questions that I ask my students in our discussion over his story is a simple but thought-provoking one. Would you have survived if you were in his place? And if you think the answer is no, and you wouldn't have survived, when would you have given up and succumbed to the situation at hand? Would it be when you first saw someone killed in front of you? How about when you were so sick that you could barely manage to get out of bed for the lineup check? Would you have made it after finding out that your parents were never coming back? Or perhaps when you became unfortunately singled out after paint had permanently stained your clothes? How many of us would have given up at the first harsh winter without a change of clothes or doors in our sleeping area? Would you continue to eat the soup that you had bartered for after finding out that it likely contained human remains? Would you have made it through every challenge that he did for four straight years without any support system? Some of my students are confident that they would have been tough enough to get up every single day in order to go through living hell. Others raise their hand at the first challenge and say, nope, I would have given up right then. Comparing a health mass mandate to tyranny seems silly when one considers history's challenges and what we've overcome. This doesn't make it pleasant to be living through it, but it forces us to consider how tough our modern society is compared to our past. Humans are capable of enduring so much more than we are right now. So many of our citizens invoking tyranny on the mask mandate also gives us a moment for us to consider the word and subject at hand, that of tyranny. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments. This episode is titled, A Concise History of Dictatorship. Give me liberty or give me death, Patrick Henry shouted in 1775, and he meant it. At that moment, he was a participant in the American Revolutionary War, a war that sought to break away from King George III's England. The American demands were not much. They wished to be extended the rights the British citizens had already been afforded, a right to be taxed only if they were granted suitable representation, a desire to not have to quarter the government soldiers, and the ability to retain the economic wealth that they were producing. Had the British won the War of American Independence, Patrick Henry and the other Founding Fathers would have surely faced the death penalty for their actions. These patriots were willing to die for their ideals, with the concept of freedom as one of their leading principles. Henry, notably, was not the first who was willing to put his or her life on the line in an attempt to reject unjust government. For authoritarianism goes back as far as humanity does. In this episode, we'll attempt to give a concise history on the history of tyranny as a lead-in to multiple episodes regarding the 20th century's greatest dictators. For Patrick Henry, the fight against tyranny didn't end with the defeat of George III. Henry became one of the leading members of the Anti-Federalists a group that feared the new American central government, a fear born out of the belief that it could become the same intolerable thing that they had revolted against in the first place. History shows that this democratic backsliding is and remains a legitimate fear. The meaning of words are often best understood by directly comparing them to their opposite, Today, we look at democracy as the opposite of tyrannical government. Democracy, of course, is government by the people, or at least government by the majority of the people. Now, this in no way means that democracy is perfect. Tyranny of the majority involves the creation of policy that ranges from discriminatory to deadly. 
post-revolution, the majority of citizens in southern states believed that it was right to enslave someone purely on the basis of their birth status. George Wallace even won the governorship of Alabama despite the slogan in 1963 that disgustingly read, Segregation now, segregation forever. Tyranny of the majority is so common that our democracy empowered an almost tyrannical power broker. In America, we call it the Supreme Court. Think about it. Nine unelected justices serve for life and have the power to create law just through their opinions. In fact, some historical scholars believe that that power comes not from the Constitution of the Founding Fathers, but from the court itself, via the case of Marbury v. Madison. This group of nine is entrusted with veto-proof power over the lives of all U.S. citizens, as well as anyone living within our borders. And although they have gotten it right more times than not, there are plenty of examples of horrifically bad judgment sitting on the court's bench. There are some who even use the term judicial dictatorship to describe the court of the world's predominant democracy. James Robinbolt, author of a number of books on the American political system, even goes so far as to ask the question, kings, monarchs, dictators, Supreme Court justices, which one doesn't belong? as if the answer isn't as simple as one might imagine. So if tyranny exists within its opposite, the world's preeminent democracy, both via the ballot box and through the courts which serve as a check to prevent the tyranny of the majority, what then exactly is tyranny? The word tyranny comes from ancient Greece, and the modern English usage implies that of an absolute ruler unrestrained by law. The negative connotation around the word comes from the fact that these unrestrained absolute rulers typically have come to power only after usurping a legitimate ruler's sovereignty. Thus, with tyranny serving as the opposite of democracy, one has to first believe that the people have the natural right to rule. Tyranny removes that natural right by placing it improperly in an individual or a small group of individuals' hands. Note that nothing in that definition implies that the tyrant is automatically bad, just that they weren't legitimately supposed to have the power that they're wielding. Of course, not all philosophers agreed that majority rule was the right or natural form of government. The Greek philosopher Plato was one of the first who attempted to justify authoritarian dictatorships. In his most famous work, The Republic, Plato argues that a system in which everyone has a right to rule will always be doomed by the selfish among us, for they will inevitably seek to write the rules to their own benefit, particularly to the end of gathering more power for themselves. Ironically, Plato paints a picture where the right to rule via democratic means will result eventually in the establishment of dictatorship. To him, it is the inescapable truth that all roads lead to tyrants. Plato offered up his ideal government, something that he referred to as Colopolis, a utopia where its people would be stationed in one of three castes. The producer-worker class, the auxiliary soldiers, to ensure both safety and likely the continued obedience of the worker class, and the guardian philosopher kings or queens. This elite class would be chosen from the most wise and virtuous of the society. They would then be obligated to live simply and abandon their children to be raised by the community so that they would always prefer the good of the people over the good of their own biological offspring. Sir Karl Popper, one of the 20th century's most important philosophers, argues that Plato's political musings were directly responsible for the rise of totalitarianism, including Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin during his own lifetime. 
one of the Far East's most famous philosophers, Confucius, likewise justified what we would today consider a dictatorship. Confucius argued for personal enlightenment regarding ethics. He believed that each of us was capable of achieving a high degree of ethical behavior in all facets of our lives. But as capable as we were, we would still need help. And that is where the government comes in. For any libertarians listening, this concept of government help is probably enough to trigger a slight uptick in your fear level. After all, I do recall Ronald Reagan claiming that the nine scariest words in the English language were, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And this utopian Chinese government would be there to provide all the assistance that the people could need. Like Plato, Confucius envisioned the smartest and the most virtuous to rule over the people justly. Also like Plato, he had no trust in majority groupthink. Instead, he urged for a return to a mandate from heaven. This concept was used prior to Confucius's life. It taught that the king, or emperor of China, had been chosen by the heavens. Because of this, it was only right to acquiesce to government rule and decisions. There was a way of recalling this man whom heaven had favored. Both natural and man-made disasters, such as famine, as well as a successful coup d'etat, were all signs that heaven had withdrawn its mandate. Upon which, the new government would rise and claim totalitarian powers. The concept legitimized what was often an illegitimate takeover. Although Confucius envisioned wise and virtuous rulers who would respect the rights of the people, his political philosophy preached Confucian chivalry, which included deference to those in power. In fact, a number of political scientists point the finger at Confucianism for creating a collective mindset in which the Chinese people refrain from questioning or critiquing those who hold power, the result of which in the 21st century has been self-sacrificing of their own human rights protections. Thomas Hobbes is a third of the world's most famous philosophers who saw authoritarianism as the natural form of government. Rather than Pixar's belief that we are all controlled by five primary emotions cooperating together in an effort to improve our well-being, with those being joy, sadness, fear, anger, and disgust, Hobbes believed that two of these emotions were always engaged in a constant tug-of-war for control. He reasoned this out by claiming that at every moment of our life, every inflection or decision point, hope or fear were present. Hobbes' state of nature is one of violence, where individuals take what others have in an attempt to maximize their own good or safety. This perpetual fear can only be overcome, Hobbes argues, by individuals coming together under a sovereign. In other words, an individual that holds supreme authority. Fear would bring the people together, and it would also keep them together. The sovereign's near unlimited authority to enforce the social contract's rules meant that they would hold the power of life itself both being able to grant it and take it away. Fear of that punishment then compels the sovereign subjects to uphold the contract and submit to the sovereign's rule. That's not so terrible an idea. If your sovereign is a man or woman of principled reason and judgment. But what if the sovereign is Joseph Stalin? Or even worse, a member of North Korea's Kim family, which claims to be from a line that was birthed out of a double rainbow. Even more amazing, Kim Jong-il was walking in three weeks, speaking in five weeks, 
and fulfilling the wish of every single parent sick of changing diapers. After all, Jong-il never made a single bowel movement in his life. Few sovereigns were just, even if not all of them were as ridiculous as the Kim family. Two ancient civilizations that exemplified the horrors of Hobbes' utopia were the Assyrians and the Aztecs. The Assyrians were the most ruthless of all early empires in Mesopotamia. They regularly bragged in their contemporaneous notes of poking out their prisoners' eyes, slicing off their noses, as well as collecting ears as trophies. The Neo-Assyrian Empire continually conquered and along with it cut off plenty of noses, because they believed that it was a requirement for their god Asha to continue to bring the sun up each morning. This desire to continue the cycle of daylight meant that the Neo-Assyrians killed and maimed for more than 300 years. Likewise, the Aztecs' religious beliefs influenced their rule. We see Lepochali, the sun god was believed to have to fight off dark evil spirits each night in order to once again appear at dawn. Since that god fell on blood, the Aztecs needed to restore its strength by committing constant human sacrifice. Failure to do so would mean that the sun would never rise again. The sovereign then, in both of these instances, threw away his people's lives to maintain a custom that legitimized their own position, as the one who knew God's will. Asher only spoke to the sovereign of the Assyrians, and only the Aztec ruler could organize the sacrifices to keep the day going. Confucius was born in 551 BC. Plato in 428 BC, and Hobbes in 1588 AD. That allows us to claim that 2,000 years of philosophical genius all came to the conclusion that the masses could not be trusted with the controls of government. Their musings had plenty of test cases in the real world, as authoritarian rule has been the order of the day throughout history. Totalitarian kings, Pharaoh gods and military dictatorships fill the vast majority of pages of history. When you think about it, ancient Greece's invention of democracy is more of a blip rather than a breakthrough. It also wasn't widespread. Direct democracy was exclusively limited to just the city-state polis of Athens. Each year, 500 citizens of Athens, which excluded all women, children, and slaves, were randomly selected by drawing lots. Then, under severe criminal penalties, those 500 unfortunate souls had to make every decision for an entire year of their lives. It was kind of like a supercharged year of jury duty. Democracy, as an experimental form of governance, lasted for nearly 200 years, but was finally put to rest after the Athenian polis was defeated by Sparta, themselves a military dictatorship in the Peloponnesian Wars. Democracy would lie dormant until emerging from a long rest, roughly 2,300 years later, by Patrick Henry and his fellow American patriots. The U.S. would go on to combine elements of Athenian direct democracy with portions of the Roman Republic to create representative democracy a system where the majority selects who will represent them. And like Athens, American democracy initially left out all women, children, and slaves. You kind of think that we should have progressed a little bit more during those two millennia. Besides the ease of having full-time politicians, it was believed that voting would offer up a check on those placed into positions of power. 
Although the majority might decide something, their representative could always vote the other way. This fear of embarrassing loss was believed to be enough to ensure that the politicians would do right by their people. The Founding Fathers may have given us a government of the people, for the people, and by the people, but they still had a healthy amount of fear of their own people, which is why they installed both the Electoral College and allowed for the direct appointment rather than election by popular vote of senators. But we shouldn't be surprised regarding their fear. After all, they were combining ancient ideas from civilizations which no longer existed. Greece, the birthplace of the word tyrant, had succumbed to a society that was ruled through military might, rather than via the will of the people. Ancient Rome also wasn't a fan of trusting the people. Their society was the one that gave us the word dictator. The Roman Republic had two executives called consuls. In a time of crisis, the Senate could pass emergency legislation to suspend all rights and name a dictator who would be entrusted with unlimited power. The intention was to facilitate the eradication of the threat through swift unilateral action. Democracy is known for many things, but swift action is not one of them. The democratic peace theory rests upon the slowness of group action. Although the name has been added more recently, the democratic peace theory has long posited that democracies are the least likely of all forms of government to go to war, particularly when they stand opposed to another democracy. Immanuel Kant believed that a world filled with democracies would be a world of perpetual peace. There are a few reasons for this. First, those who lose wars would pay the political penalty for their decision-making. This would encourage them to seek peaceful means to resolve challenges. Kings, on the other hand, had no such fear of embarking on a disastrous path to war. Mad King George remained in office for 35 years after the beginning of his disastrous war against America. Furthermore, democracies are slow in their deliberation. They have to organize and whip the votes for war. That takes time and allows for cooler heads to eventually prevail. A king can throw the country off a cliff, based upon nothing more than a poor night's sleep. Cincinnatus exemplified the wisdom of the Roman Republic's inclusion of supreme power in the event of an emergency. Cincinnatus, a retired consul, was out plowing his own fields when he was approached by an official government delegation. The Roman army had become surrounded by enemies, while simultaneously being besieged by their own poor leadership. Cincinnatus accepted the delegation's request, then he grabbed his toga and emerged from retirement in order to take up the mantle of unlimited power and became the dictator of Rome. His orders were for all military men to assemble under his command with five days' worth of rations. They marched swiftly and crushed their opponents. Over the course of 15 days, Cincinnatus had become a dictator, saved Rome, been honored with a parade in the Circus Maximus, and then returned home to once again take up the plow. To add even more to his legend, he achieved the rank of dictator once again 19 years later, this time to put down a rebellion by a consul who was trying to usurp the throne. That man was captured and executed by Cincinnatus, who then once again proceeded to peacefully give up all the power in the world. Perhaps then it isn't true that absolute power corrupts absolutely. A somewhat modern-day example comes from two of the greatest U.S. leaders, Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. Lincoln rose to the occasion after being immediately confronted by the greatest challenge that America had ever faced. 
itself, based upon fears that Lincoln would eventually end the practice of slavery, the southern states rebelled, thus beginning the Civil War. The U.S. Republic is based upon the ideas of the Roman Republic, which includes a dictator-like clause. Lincoln declared martial law and suspended the writ of habeas corpus. The term habeas corpus means to have a body off. Suspending it prevents individuals from challenging whether they have been unlawfully detained in prison. Lincoln used his newfound power to shut down newspapers, arrest a sitting congressman, as well as the chief of police in Baltimore, and numerous other individuals that opposed his efforts to restore the Union. He also had a number of individuals tried by military tribunals and executed for their efforts to subvert the war effort by aiding the Confederacy. This expansion of presidential powers was even challenged by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, an institution which eventually decided that only the Congress had the right to suspend the rule of law. Lincoln never had to directly give up these powers that he seized. All of the laws were written to include language directly related to the Civil War. Thus, once the Union was restored, habeas corpus and our system of checks and balances were also restored. But what if your emergency decree ruler isn't Cincinnatus or Lincoln? What if it isn't George Washington who refused both the title of king or the opportunity to run unopposed for a third presidential term? Unfortunately, these men are the exception to the rule that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Julius Caesar came to power a number of years after Cincinnatus, and he went on to systematically destroy the institutions of the Roman Republic, to the point that the system fought back. Brutus was the hero, albeit unsuccessful hero, of that story. He and his 60 conspirators decided that the only way to save the Republic was to kill the tyrant. Strangely enough, most of my students are 100% convinced that Caesar is a good guy. Why is anyone's guess? But mine is that we regularly confuse fame with success. Ironically, fame was something that Caesar always coveted. Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy gives us the iconic line of, you either live long enough to become the villain or die the hero. Caesar lived long enough to perform a significant number of villainous acts in his 55 years of life. Crucifying Sicilian pirates after they were kind to him comes to mind, as does his treatment of basically every single woman he encountered but the Roman Republic still had a heartbeat upon Caesar's death. It wasn't until his heir Octavian became emperor that authoritarianism became the rule for Rome. But Gaius Octavianus Thurinus was more clever than Caesar about seizing ultimate power. He positioned himself publicly as a reluctant leader. He even gifted back his powers only to have them returned by the Senate as if it were a game of hot potato. Under the newly named Augustus Caesar, the self-proclaimed first citizen, Rome thrived and the concept of a republic governed by individual rights receded to the point that the dream that was Rome was forgotten. The new government immediately showcased the danger that dynastic dictatorships posed. The Julio-Claudian dynasty that followed produced some of history's worst tyrants, including Tiberius, whose paranoia tore Rome apart, Caligula, who put his horse literally in charge of Rome, and Nero, who famously fiddled while Rome burned. Octavian, though, had hit on something. By appearing reluctant to rule, he managed to make himself more acceptable to those he desired to dominate. 
Rome finally fell after 197 had gone on to don the imperial purple. The next great era of authoritarianism came from the economic system of feudalism. Today's authoritarianism rests upon the notion of control. A totalitarian government wants to have control over every aspect of your life, including how and what you think, as well as where you can and cannot go. It particularly wants to control who and what you are afraid of. Feudalism offered the 20th century dictators a blueprint on control. Feudalism started to become the dominant system of control in the 9th century as Charles Martel, a franc, took advantage of what had become a literal state of nature created by the collapse of the Roman Empire. His knights were a dominant fighting force, and Martel used them to bring both order to the land as well as seizing that land for himself. As a high school teacher, I've not yet reached this point, but I assume there's a point where you have so much money and land that you're happy to give it away. Martel used his recently gained land to create a system of loyalty to his rule. He granted fiefs, money-producing estates to his allies, in return for the ability to produce a living wage, plus a fortune on top, the loyalists would have to answer to the call of their lord. These extremely wealthy vessels would in turn lease out their land to workers, who would have no choice but to accept the horrific working conditions and poverty-level wages because there was literally no unowned land for them to take in their own name. Feudalism locked in the class system in a way that was just as effective as the Hindu caste system. The only difference was that feudal lords worshipped power as their god. Because the origins of the feudal system were rooted in the concept of seizing power from someone weaker than you, the top of the pyramid scheme had to continually grow their power for fear that a more ruthless feudal lord would usurp their kingdom. Historian Frank DeCotter, in his book, How to Be a Dictator, The Cult of Personality in the 20th Century, points out that, quote, naked power always has an expiration date. Power seized through violence must be maintained by violence. A dictator must rely on military forces, a secret police, a praetorian guard, spies, informants, interrogators, torturers. Thus, European kings became locked in a fiscal military state of violence that was similar to what African tribal big men were pursuing at the same time. Once again, the violent nature of humans in the state of nature encouraged the majority of us to band together for protection. That we gave up our rights as well as our ability to earn a living wage was ignored because of the overwhelming fear felt in the world. Thomas Hobbes seems to have a point about our dominant emotion. In order to lock in their privilege at the top of the pyramid, the kings of feudal nations turned to ancient Egypt to enhance their authority. In ancient Egypt, the pharaoh was the intermediary between man and the gods. Thus, their privileged position was a necessity in order to keep the gods happy. Although some European monarchs attempted to take on the persona of a living god, Louis the Sun King comes to mind, most kings justified their extreme privilege via the divine right of kings. Although the philosophy behind the divine right of kings always existed, it became openly discussed and theorized in the halls of European lords during the Middle Ages. Decatur reveals the reason, stating that it is best to pretend that coercion is actually consent. A dictator must instill fear in his people, but if he can compel them to acclaim him, he will probably survive longer. The tyrants of this era had to figure out a way of creating the illusion of legitimacy. 
The divine right of kings claimed that God had chosen them to rule by placing them in the womb of the queen so that they would then be in the right place at the right time in order to inherit the throne. This form of predestination made it impossible to oppose the king because doing so would be going against God's will. The fact that Europe was universally religious during this time allowed for the royal family to usurp any remaining ounces of freedom that existed in their land. In 1193, Richard I of England explained exactly where he stood in life by saying, I am born in a rank which recognizes no superior but God, to whom alone I am responsible for my actions. Richard made the argument that only God could judge or try him for his crimes. The Catholic popes had always claimed this level of divine authority slash immunity, and faced with the rise of God-chosen kings crisscrossing their lands, the Vatican fought back in an attempt to put these individuals in their place i.e. just below the authority of their own divine right mandate. The Protestant Reformation, however, shattered their hopes in the 1500s, particularly when King Henry VIII split from the Catholic Church after he was denied the right to divorce. Henry had tasted unlimited power. To ensure its continuation, he created a new church, one that would have himself the monarch of England in charge of it. Thus, he now carried two divine right justifications, that of the king and of his newly named position, the sovereign. This concentrated power produced horrific abuses of their supposedly godly authority. The custom or right of jus prima noctis comes to mind. Although it's not clear if the practice was official law, it for sure happened with regularity. The phrase, which served as the primary plot device for the movie Braveheart, means right of the first night. Lords would claim a God-given privilege to sleep with the bride on her wedding night. Dr. Vern Bolo of the State University of New York cuts through the controversy of whether it was custom, right, or myth, and calls it out for what it was. He writes that, quote, recent evidence would emphasize the so-called right was simply the ability of the powerful to subject the less powerful to their will. Rape might be a better term to apply since husbands and families had to resort to subterfuge to thwart the desires of the powerful. A few European families, particularly the Habsburgs of Central Europe, dominated the feudal game to the point that they were able to establish the modern states of Europe. Thus began the era of absolutism, a time period which gave us some of the greatest characters in world history. With their power secured via their divine right, their hereditary custom titles, and standing armies that were loyal first and foremost to themselves, these individuals were able to return to the world of excess that was previously enjoyed in Caligula's Rome. Louis the Sun King was admired to the point that hundreds of sycophants had the unnecessary and invasive procedure of removing a fistula via their rectum, just so they could share something in common with their lord. Ivan the Terrible would have 20 prisoners tortured in front of him each day for lunch, and Catherine the Great once gifted a thousand serfs amazingly another word in the English language for human beings, to an ex-lover as a reward for his apparently remarkable services. Harkening back to feudalism, these acts were cheered by those that desired to increase their own status and power. 
This alternative reality eventually confused even those that created it. While dictators lie to their people, they also lie to themselves, eventually convincing themselves of their own genius. It's hard to believe that Louis never figured out that his gardener was purposefully setting the statues in Versailles askew, just so he could compliment the king for noticing it. The totality of the state now rested in the hands of one family that was divinely chosen. This divine right wasn't truly challenged until the 18th century. A series of revolutionaries, including the American colonists, French egalitarians, and Englishmen in the gunpowder plot, all sought to challenge the notion of unlimited power in the hands of a few. These early democratic insurgents attempted to create checks and balances to challenge the excess of the absolute rulers. But each movement was pushed back by the forces of authoritarianism. The victorious American founding fathers were all rich aristocrats. We had traded one King George for another, or at least we had attempted to, once again thankfully Washington declined. These men were not slaves that rose up to overthrow an unjust government. They were the rich elites, who themselves owned slaves, that had risked their lives in order to be the ones that had their hands on the levers of power. Thankfully, they did better, for the most part, than their predecessors. The French Revolution was a bloody and messy affair to create a new world order, the old images of excess, such as the Habsburgs' own Marie Antoinette, were beheaded by the guillotine. But what emerged after a short period was a series of new dictators. Far from the perfect utopia that the revolutionaries had discussed in their salons, the new French government of the people created a 10-day work week that only included one day off for their workers. A second revolution occurred shortly after, and Emperor Napoleon emerged as the true victor of the French Revolution. The gunpowder treason sought to blow up Parliament and, along with the building, all of its lords and their king. Here at least comes a success story, although not an explosive one, as the plot was discovered and stopped in time. Instead, the success is showcased each year in England. Guy Fawkes Day is celebrated on November 5th in remembrance of the notion that governments should be afraid of their people and not the other way around. For Fawkes and his conspirators, however, this didn't mean much. Each was painfully executed by the authoritarian state that they attempted to overthrow. As religion declined and reporting revealed the debauchery of the courts, the absolute rulers had to figure out a new way to maintain the illusion of their legitimacy that was the basis of their power. They turned to nationalism, intense pride in their state. In the 1800s, monarchs positioned themselves as the representative of the state. This change did force them to clean up their act, at least as it was seen publicly. No country wants to be embarrassed by their leader. This doesn't mean that mistakes of excess didn't continue to happen. It just meant that they became more aware of the PR and began to police themselves. Take for instance the monarchy of Queen Elizabeth II. Her son, Prince Andrew, has been accused of a number of horrific acts that would be considered extremely tame in the ages of absolutism and feudalism. Recently caught up in allegations around Jeffrey Epstein, it appears that Prince Andrew is likely to be charged with sexual assault. For decades, however, Andrew's accusers have sought justice, but found it difficult to go after a prominent member of England's royal family. In years past, the prince would have been acting as any royal head. In today's age, 
his acts were seen at least as embarrassing to the crown. He had long ago been cut out of the line of succession for that embarrassment, and he had his privileges and public appearances reduced. But he still was protected, because the state going after him meant that they were going against the wishes of their queen mother, a woman that is beloved by the people, and who herself represents that state. It remains to be seen what will happen to Prince Andrew, but as with so many things in this world, what was once tolerated is no longer acceptable. The monarchs of Europe had become inseparable from the country itself. You didn't need to say God save England and the Queen. They were the same thing. But nationalism also gave us World War I, as the wills of a few families tore the world asunder and opened up the door to the next phase of authoritarianism. And when I say a few families, I really mean it. Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany, King George V of England, and Tsar Nicholas II of Russia were all cousins. World War I and the disastrous Treaty of Versailles broke the world. It is from these cracks that emerged the era of the 20th century dictatorships, a group of characters that this season will focus on. As the world was shifting away from totalitarianism, World War I opened the door to a counter-strike by the forces of dictatorship. If dictatorship is the dark side, then the words of Yoda stand out for their wisdom. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. The French desired to see Germany suffer for their role in World War I. That suffering in Weimar Germany preceded the rise of Adolf Hitler. An economic and political crisis in Italy enabled Mussolini to march unopposed to power in Rome. The suffering of the Russian people under Tsar Nicholas II and their failure to modernize gave Vladimir Lenin the megaphone that he needed to establish communism in Russia. From that point, it was easy for Joseph Stalin to manipulate the system so that the state revolved around him, rather than the revolutionary proletariat. The Treaty of Versailles also gave the world an opportunity to end the horrors of colonialism. Instead, it doubled down on it. The result were wars across the globe, many of which either empowered dictators like Juan Perón or led directly to the rise of them, such as Mao Zedong, Jomo Kenyatta, Gamal Nasser, Pol Pot, Fidel Castro, Tito, and others then exploited the divisions of the Cold War to carve out small, feudal plots where they made the state bow down before them. Today, there remain 11 countries in Europe that have retained their monarchies. These kings and queens of Europe, however, accepted both limitations and public restrictions on their behavior. They have managed to retain the privilege of their birthright, even if they haven't retained much of the power that their ancestors yielded. The 20th century dictators that emerged, however, were well beyond the reach of public opinion. It is here again that we get the negative connotation of a tyrant, dictator, or authoritarian. After all, we don't teach Elizabeth I's reign as tyranny because she was mostly a positive force for good. Modern-day dictators did attempt to cover up their horrific acts. The most obvious examples were Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong, who were both obsessed with hiding their evil acts from the masses. But when these deeds reached the people, it didn't matter for their rule. These leaders embraced the negative reading of Machiavelli's The End Justifies the Means, and they had embraced cruelty to maintain their power. The 20th century dictators universally used violence to manipulate the fear of the masses. They surrounded themselves with violent sycophants, 
who are either entirely dependent upon their leader for their position and privilege, or were so sadistic it didn't matter. Stalin was a master of manipulation here, as he regularly purged his inner circle to keep everyone in fear of challenging him. Decatur reminds us that dictators are afraid of their own people, but even more fearful of their entourage at court. They were weak. Had they been strong, they would have been elected by majority. Instead, they decided to take a shortcut, often over the bodies of their opponents. But if they could seize power, others could too, raising the prospect of a stab in the back. To further discourage anyone from picking up that knife, these authoritarians would ensure that enemies were placed all around their people. They would then position themselves as a Cincinnatus, the reluctant leader who was the only one in a position to save the helpless people. Instead of returning to the fields, however, they took over and manipulated individuals' minds through all mediums of media. They were relentless in reminding the people that the vanquished enemies remain just outside, waiting in the shadows for the perfect opportunity to strike. New mediums only extended their power over the people. Juan Perón and Adolf Hitler were among the first to understand the value of the radio for propaganda. Each dictator in the 20th century worked hard to cultivate their personality cult, a series of half-truths that would work to protect them whenever the forces of liberalism would pierce through their protective barriers. According to their personality cults, Adolf was supposedly doing God's work on Earth. Stalin was obviously the natural successor to Marx and Lenin, Mao was just a plain, normal man of the people. Fidel's revolution was continuous, and Mussolini held all the answers. We will examine each dictator's cult of personality in depth to better understand how each dictator got away with murder. Decatur argues that the cult of personality is at the very heart of tyranny. While violence brought dictators to power, their personality cult kept them in power, despite their obvious inadequacies and flaws. These men were not geniuses. The simpler answer for their rise is that totalitarianism is a part of our life. It has always been with us, and unfortunately, it always will be. Ancient Mesopotamia had kings leading their people against each other in the pursuit of empire. The Greeks had clashes between the first democracy and empires both near and far. The Romans voted to end checks and balances in order to legitimize totalitarianism, the fall of which resulted in feudalism and the repackaging of dictators as divine lords. From there, it evolved into absolutism before a revolutionary counterstrike forced the monarchs into better public behavior. Many realized that they could maintain their privilege while reducing their workload, but others desired to restore their place on top of the absolute pyramid. Thus, Mussolini, Hitler, and Stalin emerged in Europe. But this isn't just a European story. The Aztec king demanded sacrifice and tribute from the surrounding tribes, establishing a pyramid caste system to protect his own power. They were overthrown by the lesser tribes, who then became subjected to the rule of the Spanish Catholic monarch from across the sea. Upon independence, Mexico experienced one-party rule for nearly the entire 20th century. Chinese history is littered with examples of dynastic rule clashing as to who was on top. 
the mandate of heaven was used to justify their place. Until someone usurped that mandate, Mao overthrew Chiang Kai-shek, a man who was no lover of either democracy or human rights. Mao rose via his opposition to the intervention by a Japanese emperor who proclaimed to others that he was literally the son of heaven. Today, China remains in the hands of Mao's CCP, governing a one-party system that maintains one of the worst human rights records in the world. Like the Queen of England, China, however, understands the need for good PR in order to remain in a position of privilege. Their current method is to make sure that the world is connected so tightly to their economy that they are unable to criticize their dealer. Amazingly, Japan still has an emperor, one that is still related to that World War II son of heaven, which I think makes him the grandson of heaven. From the study of history, it becomes clear that dictatorships, authoritarianism, and totalitarianism are not flaws in the system. They are the system. If the state of human nature is brutish and full of self-interested individuals, then tyrants will always exist in our world. There will always be individuals who seek their own gain at the expense of others. The question is whether we follow John Locke's belief that we can give up just a few of our rights in exchange for protection, or whether Hobbes was correct and totalitarianism is the natural order of governance. There is no doubt that fear guides many of our decisions. And that includes whether or not to succumb to a caste system that privileges a few over the majority. All government systems do this to an extent. A quick look at the history of the United States leadership allows you to realize that there are few ruling families that benefit from their positions close to power. The Kennedys, Clintons, and Bushes have all formed modern-day political dynasties. But having multiple family members in power doesn't mean that those families can't be benevolent rulers. It wasn't until the last hundred years that the words dictator and tyrant acquired an automatic negative connotation. Cincinnatus still offers us an example that individuals can resist the lure of power and return to a simple life of tending crops in a field. If we want to avoid the lure of authoritarianism, we must first resist fear-mongering. We must remember that the government ought to be more afraid of the people than we ought to be of them. But this also doesn't mean that the majority are always right either. Tyranny of the majority is still tyranny by another method. Democracy and liberalism itself are not bulwarks against tyranny. Hitler rose to power through democratic means. Vladimir Putin took advantage of the failures of Russia's brief and disastrous relationship with democracy. Recep Erdogan has gone from a constitutionally limited president of Turkey to its unchallenged ruler. Today, Viktor Orban is steadily leading Hungary to a right-wing authoritarian state, and Poland is being openly referred to as a democratic dictatorship. When the words can be put together, they're no longer opposites. This movement towards empowering one person over the masses to confront challenges is a part of our human nature. Harvard philosopher Judith Sklar, the author of The Liberalism of Fear, believes that it is inevitable that governments will abuse the inevitable inequalities in power that result from political organization. She reminds us that while a constitutional democracy is our best defense against government abuse, it is by no means perfect. Fear, evil, and injustice are concepts that will always exist. Frank Decatur reminds us that no dictator can rule through fear and violence alone. 
Naked power can be grabbed and held temporarily, but it never suffices in the long term. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't remain vigilant. Just as injustice continues in our everyday lives, dictatorships remain and will continue to expand their power bases. The history of totalitarianism is a significantly longer edition when compared to the history of liberalism. From reading that first edition, we have learned that we should always take the authoritarian threat to liberty and democracy seriously, no matter where that threat comes from or what it looks like. Comedian and political commentator John Stewart recently pointed out that the silliness of the threat can't be overlooked. He states that, quote, the most dangerous figures are the ones that seem comic and absurd. Saddam Hussein seems absurd. Muammar Gaddafi would stand in a katan and rant like a madman. Stewart finishes with the idea that you have to be shameless and absurd in order to do shameful things. And it would be shameful for any of us to not take the threats to legitimate government by the people seriously. After looking at the role that fear plays in all of this, I'll ironically close with the words of our only four-term President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Quote, The only fear we have is fear itself.